0: Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And now for an orientation to the topic of focus for today's episode. Sleep health characteristics such as sleep duration, sleep continuity, and sleep schedule consistency and timing have been shown to play key roles in natural aging processes, including those related to cognition. Research has demonstrated that poor sleep health characteristics play a causal role in the development of negative cognitive health outcomes, including accelerated cognitive decline and neurodegenerative conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. Sleep health not only serves as a marker for identifying individuals at heightened risk for negative cognitive outcomes, but also can be a non-invasive therapeutic focus to slow cognitive decline and disease progression, while also enhancing quality of life. As such, convenient and accurate measurement of sleep health in individuals, particularly older adults, is critical. Sleep diaries and actigraphy have been relied upon as tools to longitudinally capture sleep health characteristics. Albeit useful, these tools have limitations related to accuracy and user burden, particularly in the context of cognitive decline within older adults. Considering that sleep diaries require the individual to recount sleep-related features, Responses can often be unreliable and inaccurate, especially for those experiencing cognitive impairment. Although actigraphy addresses this limitation of sleep diaries by objectively measuring sleep wake characteristics, these devices must be regularly recharged, removed, and replaced, which puts a burden on the individual that can result in notable data loss and potentially emotional distress for the individual. As such, developing alternative strategies for collecting sleep health features longitudinally. That reduce user burden while maintaining quality data accuracy is warranted, especially for older adults, individuals experiencing cognitive decline, and patients experiencing neurocognitive and or neurodegenerative disorders, as well as other physical and psychological disabilities. Over the recent decades, the commercial domain has brought forth alternative solutions for longitudinal sleep tracking. Wearable devices are most ubiquitous across society, and current generation models have shown notably improved sleep quantification and classification estimation abilities relative to the early generations of models. However, these devices burden the user in the same manner to that of actigraphy. Rather, nearable, contactless devices such as bedside monitors and mattress sensors may provide an accessible solution for addressing the current challenges of sleep measurement in older adults, individuals experiencing cognitive decline, and patients experiencing neurocognitive and neurodegenerative disorders, as well as other physical and psychological disabilities, given that these devices are generally low burden and non-intrusive. Although these devices in their past and present generations have largely shown notable shortcomings in sleep quantification and classification they may have specific utility for conveniently capturing nocturnal and daytime sleep periods in these populations. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Kiran Kumar Guruswami Ravindran to discuss the recently published article in the journal Sleep entitled Contactless and Longitudinal Monitoring of Nocturnal Sleep and Daytime Naps in Older Men and Women, a Digital Health Technology Evaluation Study. The study largely aimed to evaluate the nocturnal and daytime nap sleep detection abilities of two contactless sleep tracking technologies relative to traditionally relied upon longitudinal sleep tracking approaches in a community dwelling sample of older adults. Before diving into the interview portion of the episode, here is a brief background on our guest, Dr. Kiran Kumar Guraswami-Ravidran. Dr. Kiran Kumar Guruswami Ravidran is a postdoctoral researcher at the Surrey Sleep Research Center at the University of Surrey and UK DRI Care Research and Technology Center. His current research focuses on understanding the influence of comorbidities on sleep physiology and assessing the efficacy of consumer sleep technologies for monitoring sleep in older adults and people living with dementia. Prior to his involvement in the field of sleep physiology and dementia, He earned his master's and PhD in biomedical engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology, Madras, in Chennai, India. While there, he worked on developing low cost EEG hardware, spatial filters, and target detection methods for steady state visual evoked potential based brain computer interfaces. Through his research, he aspires to use his unique blend of expertise in both sleep science and engineering to create scalable solutions to real-world problems that currently hinder round-the-clock monitoring of sleep and circadian function. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Kiran Kumar Guruswami-Ravidran. I hope you enjoy. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. Dr. Kiran Kumar Guruswami-Ravidran, welcome to the Sleep Research Society podcast. Honestly, It's a true pleasure to meet you. And I really do thank you for finding the time for a chat to discuss your research, which I find awesome and incredibly important. But before we go any further, how are you doing today?
1: Thank you for having me, Jesse. I'm doing really great today. Uh, From the morning, I was looking forward to our discussion. So I'm ready to hop in.
0: Well, I'm excited to have you. Uh, Again, this topic is incredibly important, and I haven't really ran into many people who are looking at it, trying to address the problems that are in place right now. And I think as I've talked to you more kind of pre-show, I've got a better sense of of your whole body of work here. And we'll get into that later on because it's not just the standalone paper. So we'll discuss everything in detail there, or at least unpack it and tease some other stuff. Now, before we go into the actual science, I always think it's cool to just present the researcher, let them talk about their personality, who they are, how they got here. In some ways, that's one of the main purposes of this podcast. And prior to the interview portion, I do give the listeners uh, a brief introduction to the topic and also the guests themselves. You, Uh, thank you for the biography that you've sent over. I appreciate it. It makes my life a lot easier. But I've gotten feedback from the listeners, and they really appreciate hearing from the guests how they actually got to this current place in sleep and circadian research. And I know your journey is a little bit different than some of the others that we've had on. So, Kieran, how did you get to this point in sleep and circadian research?
1: I've always been fascinated by the diverse landscape uh, of sleep research. So it it ranges from neural mechanisms uh, and circadian rhythms uh, to sleep disorders. And that was uh, incredibly uh, interesting to me, uh, given my uh, strong background in uh, signal processing and statistical learning. When I completed my PhD, uh, I took a conscious choice to transition into sleep research. Till now, the journey has been thoroughly engaging uh, for me, and I'm eager to make contributions to this field.
0: Outstanding. And, you know, I really don't, always know what I'm going to walk into when I invite a guest to the platform. And I I truthfully did not know that your background was in biomedical engineering. And that was super cool and actually got me more excited for the topic at hand today because we're going to be talking about technology. And this is why I love the field, because it brings in such diversity of thought. And that allows us to progress on so many levels to address key gaps. And I'm just excited to, to have you in the field. Thank you. Welcome to the family. And I'm excited to see what you bring to the field. Now, Kieran, you're doing a lot of great work. And I have been surprised in the past by guests about the fact that they actually have time for hobbies and interests. I'll start with this. It's a two-part question. One, do you have time for hobbies and interests? And two, if you do,
1: what are they? I do have time for my hobbies. Uh, I, I I really like to do other stuff. So I'm, I'm kind... Kind of versatile in that sense. I'm I'm con- constantly learn, uh, drawn towards learning different things. Like uh, even when I'm doing sleep research, I, I find a topic on, uh, for example, recently. Like I-, I was really excited about creating an API for uh, a sleep sensor. So uh, I have a bucket list of things which I, I use to like uh, divert my uh, mind from sleep whenever I needed to. So. I constantly learn and I like doing a lot of projects across various domains. So currently I'm reading a lot of nihilistic philosophy. So that's what I do when I'm free.
0: Absolutely beautiful. And uh, I love the intersection of science and the discipline of philosophy itself. So after this chat, I'll have to bug you for a couple more hours. We'll talk more philosophical concepts and things like that. Now, Kieran, we'll talk about kind of older adults specifically later on. That's a portion of the lifespan, right? Neither one of us have reached that point yet. We were once children. Some argue I still am a child emotionally. I'll actually defend that as well. But Kieran, when you were a child,
1: what did you aspire to be when you grew up? I was a jack of all trades when I was a kid. I kind of aspired to become everything. Like, so... Uh, at one point, I wanted to become a, a diagnostician. Uh, later, I wanted to become like working with plants, plant biotechnology, and uh, creating uh, new varieties of plants. Th- that was when I was in my high school. And later, I wanted to do veterinary science or astrophysics. So, so my uh, interests have been diverse and have been changing quite a lot. But when I did my bachelor's in biomedical engineering, I had to take a choice of uh, how I'm going to direct myself. Then I chose signal processing and statistical learning. And then I jumped into the field of sleep. Well, you sound very passionate about it. And I did hear veterinary medicine
0: or science in there at some point. And that aligns with my journey in our past episode, the one immediately previous to this, I was talking with Dr. Haley Meeklum, and we both shared that as well. So some unifying themes here within the sleep and circadian community. But now you do have a career. However, if you could toss it all away, Kieran, and pick any career you want right now, what would you choose?
1: Okay, that's that's a hard <laughs> question for me. Uh, I would say uh, plant biotechnology. I'm still interested in uh, in that field, and I have the tools to jump into the field uh, with a year or two of training. So, plant biotechnology would be my answer.
0: Very cool. Uh, I, I appreciate the continued efforts towards more i think useful in contributing professions relative to the things that i'd rather be doing like being second baseman for the chicago cubs or being a front man (laughs) in a rock and roll band or something like that anyways this is not about me this is about you and your science and we're going to transition a bit to the science by using the segment the keyword association and we've discussed it a little bit so i'm going to throw some terms at you and after each term I want you to respond with the first thing that comes to mind. So you have full reign here. It could be a single word. It could be a couple words. It could be a long-winded response. However you want to do it, your world, Kieran. Before I do it, I must ask, are you ready for the keyword association?
1: Uh, uh, Yes, uh, Jesse, I'm uh, ready to
0: go. That's what I'm talking about. All right, Kieran. first term here,
1: sleep measurement. So um, measuring various aspects of sleep behavior or sleep in general. Perfect. Next term, ambient sleep monitoring. Seamless tracking of sleep uh, in the natural environment of a person, preferably uh, like a contactless approach.
0: I like it. I like the word seamless. Next term,
1: client burden. The first thing that comes to my mind is effort. So how much effort the clients uh, put into measuring, in our case, sleep. We should be mindful of the potential uh, concerns of the client. And we should prioritize acceptability and inclusivity.
0: Very well said. And last term here to close down our keyword association, reporter
1: accuracy. The first thing that comes to my mind is the self-reported sleep. So. In the context of my paper, that would be the, the bias in the recall. Different people, uh, for example, people with cognitive decline, have poor reporter report accuracy. In that case, we might have to look into the reliability of the measurement or uh, any tool that provides us reliable measurement uh, consistently. Well said. And this is the delicate balance
0: between objective measures and subjective measures, right? We never want to remove the subjective experience here. But we know from research that there are certain reporter tendencies. For instance, we know differences across sex and gender that present in people's willingness to report. We also know in the context of our measurements today that people may be more or less accurate in their ability to estimate sleep and wake just relative to their own characteristics. And we have to be mindful of these things because, yeah, objective measures may be useful, but they also have their own limitations. So it's this delicate balance between both. And I think we've done a nice job here transitioning to the actual topic of focus today. You know, we're prepared for flight. Uh, We've got our tray tables up. We're about to, to launch into the air. And as I mentioned in the introduction, today's episode focuses specifically on a singular research investigation that you and your colleagues published in SLEEP, which is entitled Contactless and Longitudinal Monitoring of Nocturnal Sleep and Daytime Naps in Older Men and Women, a Digital Health Technology Evaluation Study. And initially, listeners, we're going to talk pretty high level here. I'm going to give Kieran uh, the opportunity here to provide a 10,000-foot view of the investigation, and then we're going to take a deeper dive into some bigger themes that I think are critically important for addressing some major issues in the clinical care of a lot of different populations right now. So Kieran, why don't we start with this? Can you please discuss or describe what fueled you or motivated you
1: and your colleagues to perform this investigation? The the motivation driving this research uh, is deeply rooted in uh, the UK Dementia Research Institute's dedication towards improving the lives of people living with dementia. So we know that uh, sleep disturbances and dementia uh, are closely interconnected, uh, but to reliably monitor sleep, we need monitoring technologies uh, that are evaluated in relevant population. In our case, it's people living with dementia. Uh, they need to be acceptable by the population, affordable and scalable. So that's what the center wanted. And our sleep group headed by Professor Turk and Ike uh, designed a protocol to evaluate a set of variables and contactless technologies to identify reliable technology that can be implemented and uh, that would allow burden-free monitoring. So to achieve that, we conducted this initial data collection in the community in healthy older adults. And this particular work uh, is on the contactless technologies.
0: Yeah, absolutely perfect. And to kind of summarize, I think a little bit, there's going to be multiple papers that come out that capture the various components of the design that you and your colleagues have developed here. And this paper specifically is looking at the ability of these contactless devices relative to traditional measures that we use longitudinally actigraphy and sleep diaries. And we'll get into the methodology here in a second, but basically really just focusing on how they really, I guess the primary focus being on how do these devices compare to these traditional devices or technologies or approaches in capturing the sleep and wake windows, of these individuals, not so much interested specifically in the actual characteristics, not the total sleep time, the sleep efficiency, those are important. But it was more about like, how do these devices do and actually capturing these sleep and wake windows,
1: nocturnal sleep and daytime? Would you say that's correct, Kieran? That's true, Jesse. Uh, So to talk further about these devices, we need to understand how these devices work and how are they deployed. So, uh, the devices we, uh, the contactless devices we deployed, were placed underneath the mattress. And uh, once they are uh, enabled, they continuously monitor uh, the bed presence and provide uh, other measures. We found that they are really accurate in providing the bed entries uh, and the total time in bed. They are very accurate compared to uh, sleep diary or even when we compared it to uh, video. Uh, we found that they were very accurate and uh, this paper where we compared these devices to uh, sleep diary and actigraphy we found the same like uh, these devices are accurate in estimating bed timing and they are also uh, accurate in estimating 24 hour bed presence.
0: Beautifully said and this is what I love about these conversations we'll dance around methodology findings but we'll get it all out there and that's kind of the main meat and potatoes here, at least for me, what I saw when I read the manuscript in the first place was, okay, this does a pretty good job of capturing these sleep and wake periods or the time in bed windows. And that's a huge step forward. We're going to talk specifically in the deeper dive section about why that's important. What are the limitations currently with the sleep diaries, traditional actographs, and even the commercially available wearables? Why, why these contactless devices? But Your team used two regularly available contactless bed mattress sensors, I believe, uh, which I find weird as contactless because they're technically in the bed mattress, but (laughs) it is what it is, right? Um, And I've looked at the previous evaluation studies. We'll talk about that gently later on. And they're not optimal when it comes to capturing the actual sleep characteristics relative to the gold standard. That's also a piece of your project, though. In a later publication, your team's going to come out with Evaluation data, perhaps, on how these devices actually perform next to PSG, but that's not the purpose today. And the investigation really neatly outlines that but this is not about evaluating their abilities to capture sleep characteristics relative to gold standards. It's more about specifically just these time in bed windows, which again, it may not seem like a major need, but as someone who's trained in a memory assessment clinic, had clients go to a behavioral sleep clinic. Yes, I'm still a trainee, not a licensed psychologist, trainee, but I notice how important this stuff is. So I just applaud your team for tackling this on so many levels and just kind of broadly use sleep diaries as the gold standard or the reference here to capture naps. You know, it's a trade-off, but it seems to make a lot of sense based on kind of the methodology. And then you were able to compare the contactless devices versus actigraphy against the sleep diaries when it came to the nap intervals. And then you were able to also compare the contactless devices versus actigraphy versus the reference of actigraphy plus sleep diaries, which is kind of the general recommendation that we have clinically as the best approach when you compare both those together. And as you pointed out, the contactless devices, they showed some strengths and limitations, but generally they showed what we were hoping for, right? that they were able to capture these time-in-bed windows in a manner that may actually be enhanced or improved over our generally relied upon techniques. So I really appreciate that. And I actually really loved how you summarized it, where this is taken from the manuscript where it says, overall, the results demonstrate the potential of contactless sleep technologies for at-scale longitudinal monitoring of sleep-wake cycles in older adults. Beautiful. Would you say that's the main take-home point from this manuscript?
1: Yes, Jesse, that's absolutely right. The end user is going to be people living with dementia, but we conducted this study uh, on older adults. And our primary goal was to identify whether these devices can replace traditional actigraphy and sleep diary. Uh, Since these are burden-free, they will be easily acceptable by older adults or people living with dementia. In order to achieve that, as you pointed out, we conducted the uh, comparison with uh, b- uh, between the contactless devices to the gold standard at home, which is the actigraphy assisted by sleep diary information and just the sleep diary on itself. Our results suggest that these devices are very accurate compared to sleep diary in estimating the bed timing. So ideally, uh, if you want to replace sleep diary, in estimating uh, bed timing, like when the person gets into bed and when the person gets out of bed, you can simply not deploy a sleep diary and use these devices instead. In a care perspective, people don't like to have the burden of reporting their sleep, writing down a sleep diary. Uh, So uh, ideally, you could provide them with this mat and you could instantaneously get when they get into bed, how long they spend time in bed and when they get out of bed. And um, as you also point out, when this is done longitudinally, along with a simple sleep questionnaire like a KSS, or soon after they wake up, you could directly get an estimate of how well they slept. And uh, since these devices allow you to uh, estimate when they get out of bed, so you quantify the time in bed, you quantify sleep disturbances uh, caused due to bed exits, and um, you get accurate sleep timing.
0: Accurate sleep timing, and that's that's a really important take home there. And I think really well unpacked. And I mean, I think. Um, an important finding, too, if if my brain is correct, and then we'll transition kind of into our deeper dive here, is that the contactless device, it wasn't both of them, but or maybe it was both of them, but it actually performed better relative to actigraphy alone when compared against actigraphy plus sleep diary. So the fact that this may be more comparable to what is technically the gold standard right now, actigraphy plus sleep diaries, I think is really encouraging. So that was a pretty cool finding, and you've talked a little bit about it already, so we'll start our deeper dive right now on just kind of unpacking, you know, the major challenges that we experience currently in sleep measurement, sleep tracking, sleep monitoring longitudinally within older adults, cognitive decline, neurocognitive disorders, and even in just individuals experiencing other comorbidities that inhibit or limit the ability of traditional collection approaches. So, Kieran, from from your perspective, when you think about the major challenges of sleep diaries, you've talked a little bit about it already, but specifically, why are these challenging in these populations? So
1: uh the primary problem with sleep diaries is they are subjective. So somebody has to write it down. <laughs> they have to report. So in uh, cognitively intact people, uh, sleep diary are reliable. It has been uh, well-documented. Uh, there is a clear uh, correlation between objective and uh, subjective sleep in uh, cognitively-impact cognitively people. But people with cognitive uh, decline or people with mild cognitive impairment have difficulty uh, difficulties in uh, recall. So uh, that would significantly affect the subjective uh, reports of their sleep. So we can't use sleep diaries. Sleep diaries become unreliable uh, in that situation. And actigraphy without a sleep diary is not reliable we already know from the literature when actigraphy is used automatically it's less accurate compared to when actigraphy is used along with sleep diary information so the sleep diary primarily uh, provides you uh, the lights off lights on information and and they also provide you the time they go into bed and get out of bed so the actigraphy can be improved just by using the timing of bed so in people uh, where the sleep diary is unreliable, from our study we found that actigraphy can be actually paired with a contactless device. You can use the timing they provide instead of sleep diary. In a, in our laboratory study, we found that uh, the epoch by epoch classification of uh, actigraphy and the contactless devices are similar when compared to polysomnography. So, given that in the future maybe the uh, the, imp- uh, the there will be improvement in the Uh, sleep-wake prediction accuracy of these uh, contactless devices. And we may not need an actigraphy when the person is in bed. So uh, out of bed, we can use an actigraphy. And uh, when the person goes to bed, they can remove the actigraphy, put it on their bedside and go to sleep without anything on them. And we're going to steer
0: back to that in a second as far as where we want to kind of nuance everything together. But I just want to summarize the existing technologies and approaches and how they kind of address each other's shortcomings, but don't really resolve the problem. So you unpack that sleep diaries one generally can be unreliable just because we're using subjective reporting, right? But even more so in certain populations, given differences on what they may be experiencing. And I think a bigger issue here is the burden. We also don't want to degrade quality of life any further with these patients or their caregivers, right? When it comes to dementia, neurocognitive disorders, There can be a lot of shame and guilt from not being able to complete a sleep diary or things like that. And we don't want to do harm in the medical field, right? That's a major ethos. So removing that burden is huge. Actigraphy kind of removes the burden, right? They just wear a watch in theory. However, if they take the watch off, they have to remember to put it back on. That's guidelines. but. That's burden in its own right. Also, there's battery life issues. So they're still going to have to remember to charge these things or return them, whatever it may be. So some burden removed, additional burden added. And that's kind of the same element when it comes to the wearables, the commercially available devices that we are now seeing emerging. They address the burdens of actually having to subjectively report right? each and every day recall, remove that burden. But the person still has to remember to put it on take it off. And I think importantly, I've shown this in my research, they have poor nap detection abilities. And these are populations where napping is highly prevalent, right? And we need to know sleep across a 24 hour period, especially if we're doing any sort of behavioral change related to sleep health. And we want to identify if there are these spontaneous sleep episodes that may be inhibiting their nocturnal sleep ability, right? And so I think that's where these contactless things are like, hey, Maybe they could do it all, but I spin it and I've already talked to you about this. Not all sleep periods happen in the bedroom. That's true. At all ages, but even, but specifically as older adults, right? And a lot of times they're spontaneous or they're in a recliner in the, in the living room. And so I see this as kind of a limitation of the contactless right now, unless we're going to put contactless devices everywhere, right? So it is what it is. And that's just to point out that there are these limitations that your group knows about of these devices. You know, we've already talked that there are limitations relative to PSG when it comes to the actual characteristics. Again, not the point of this. We have the ability to capture sleep-wake periods in the bedroom, but we have some issues if they're not sleeping in the bedroom. And so, Kieran, specifically, given these limitations in detecting kind of sleep and wake periods in different environments and sleep broadly, how do you see their potential role evolving in the field for the care of older adults and individuals experiencing dementia and neurocognitive disorders?
1: So as you rightly pointed out, these devices have an advantage and a disadvantage by the way they are deployed. So these are environmentally embedded. So you put them underneath your bed. So they are localized in the space. Uh, so they provide accurate information on, on when the person gets into that space. Like So when the person gets into bed, you get accurate information on uh, that the person is in bed. Uh, but as you pointed out, again, like the naps can happen anywhere. So a person could be reading a book uh, in their rec- recliner and they might simply fall asleep. And this is especially true when sleep disturbances are uh, there. So. We have actually addressed that uh, limitation uh, in our paper. So we show that actigraphy actually uh, records more naps compared to the contactless devices. That is primarily because these devices uh, are localized in space. So, given that, how can these devices be used in in population? I would say, like we have actually shown that. So. Uh, 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 one of these devices the we think sleep analyzer has been deployed in our center uh, uh, on uh, about 100 participants. And our center's imperial group has actually published a work on uh, a longitudinal uh, two-year recording from these devices. And we find that there were very less dropouts and uh, the bed patterns, bed time patterns and the bed presence were accurately detected by these uh, devices. And we also found that they were able to point out when the person has sleep dis- disturbances and uh, these were in people uh, living with dementia so uh, that was pretty interesting and uh, this uh, work actually confirms uh, was actually used to confirm their ability to detect the bed presence so when it comes to replacing actigraphy these devices cannot replace like actigraphy in, in the sense that when you get out of bed like you can't use them for monitoring sleep outside of bed. That's the, that's given. So, um, outside, like we, if we want to do 24 hour monitoring, uh, then we would have to use them in combination with another device. But again, the burden comes into place. Like, so the more you ask somebody to do, the more burden they have, it might seem simple to us, but people living with dementia are already dealing with a lot and, uh, us asking them to maintain a simple sleep diary or pair an actigraphy all the time and remember to do that, that kind of creates a lot of burden on them. And that's what we are trying to uh, remove. And I think contactless technologies, as they continue to improve, I think they will be more reliable in estimating sleep-wake patterns. For now, we know that they are uh, really good at estimating bed presence and timing of bed. Uh, They also provide other metrics like vital signs. They also provide movement estimates. So in bed, I think this is the way to go if you are trying to deliver sleep monitoring longitudinally in community-developing populations, whether it's older adults or people living with dementia.
0: Absolutely beautifully said, Kieran. I mean, I'm definitely going to clip a lot of that for marketing because uh, that was absolutely <laughs> beautiful. And and I'm that's the meat and potatoes, quinoa and berries, whatever your choice is. That's how I like to describe it. That's That's what is here, right? Is this delicacy of accuracy, accessibility, and reducing burden for the individuals and the people that are caring for them, right? In these certain situations and trying to do the best we can. Nothing is perfect. We are lying to ourselves when we say polysomnography is perfect, right? Because we know there's a lot of error there, even in terms of scoring accuracy and inter-rater reliability issues, right? It's our gold standard, but it's not perfect. And so nothing is going to be perfect. So I love the way you're approaching this from an integrative combination perspective. And I like to think about it in a personalized perspective too. With the client you're facing, what are you most interested in? And then you can select from the tools which ones best capture that while reducing the burden of the individual and getting the best data yield adherence possible. And so I think that's remarkable. And I just say kudos to you and your team for pushing this forward. And I do think that's a good place to land today. Unless, Kieran, you have anything else to add? Yes,
1: I actually wanted to talk about the logical monitoring part. So. When you deploy any device longitudinally for at-scale monitoring uh, of, uh, in the population, like in, in the community, you need to be able to collect data, but they need to be uh, able to wirelessly transmit the data. The client shouldn't be uh, burdened into making any of these settings. And another important thing would be these devices uh, need to be low cost. So if you are trying to implement a device in a, in a, in a million older adults, you you can't have a PSG or anything that costs a lot. So given the cost to uh, accuracy or cost to burden ratio, I think contactless devices are promising in that sense. And as their accuracy continues to improve, they will become a powerful tool in, in sleep ache monitoring in, in community-dwelling older adults or people living with dementia.
0: Absolutely perfectly said. And it's not just going to be in that population either. I actually see this being kind of the future of sleep measurement for the general population if we want to go down that road, right? It's better to have ambient monitoring in my brain than it is to put something on somebody that could manipulate or modify their actual sleep because we're adding another variable to the equation, right? We can think about this in the context of insomnia, whatever it may be. So I see this as the future. And yeah this is where we're at right now. But let's just think about the evolution that's happened over the last two decades in, in particular. Who knows what's going to happen in two two more decades?
1: To add to that, like the more data we have, whether it's uh, very accurate or not, we are going to find interesting patterns. So if the data uh, is unreliable, you, uh, you still can make do with the large quantity of data you're getting. So th- that's a positive. So you just need to, You you need a tool to monitor patterns and identify when something goes wrong. So, for example, when a person uh, falls or there is a lot of sleep disruption, you just need these devices to capture that. They don't have to provide very accurate sleep as close to polysomnography. Once you understand that uh, we are able to capture sleep disturbances and the clinical side finds out that the person is having clinical uh, sleep disturbances, uh, they can... Ask the person to go to a sleep clinic and then we get a diagnosis, and that's how the clinical management is done right. So this will be very useful in terms of clinical management and care in general.
0: So true. And again, on many ways, this is a balance not just between the accuracy, accessibility, and burden things we've talked about, but also a bigger tug of war that I often see, and we'll probably put a pin in it after this comment because, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but between the research domain and the clinical domain and thinking about actually application of findings and what's really meaningful and what can actually be useful and provide enhancement to the clinical process. Sometimes the things we find in the research domain, they're not practical, right? And so we have to think about actual applications. So I love what your team's doing and how it's thinking about these bigger issues. Now, Dr. Kiran Kumar, Guruswami Ravindran, I do have a final question before I let you go. And I tell people it's the hardest question of them all. truly is. You know, the gloves are coming off. I'm really coming hard in the paint here, Kieran. But the question is really centered around, oftentimes in research, we have these major constraints. You know, whether it's a tenure committee that tells us we have to stay in our lane, or we have these funding issues, or we need to complete a study over a certain amount of time so that we can apply for another grant. Well, for this question none of that exists. There are no constraints. You have unlimited funding, you have unlimited time, you have unlimited resources, and you can explore anything you want. If you were given that freedom, Kieran, what sleep end or circadian topic would you empirically research?
1: Oh, uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, So ideally, if I'm given infinite resources, I would deploy sleep monitoring devices in every older adult's house if uh, if that that's possible, anything I can do to reduce the burden in uh, older adults or people living with dementia and improving sleep improves quality of life. And I would really uh, like to achieve that in, in a global scale, if that's possible.
0: I really appreciate that. Uh, I can feel the emotional passion you have for it. And, you know, you got free reign there and you basically chose the research topic. You're kind of progressing further except you took it a step further and it's like you get a device and you get a device and you get a device and you get a device, (laughs) which i really appreciate and again this is why i'm excited because there are people like you out there and your team that see this need and are trying to address it the best we can right now so again kieran i thank you so much for your time please pass along my praise to your team i look forward to seeing the rest of the research come out on this project as well as all your work downstream and again thank you
1: thank you for having me jesse And that concludes
0: this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Ruloff-Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.